you warned me about this one and I thought about a few things and then I decided uh, that, that there are sort of, I don't know, big questions and stuff that you could talk about. But I actually think the thing we should talk about a lot more than we do is how do we increase statistical literacy in the general population? My example for this is, and this is once again a colleague who came up with this, not me, who said, why is it OK for someone to say, I don't do math? Yeah. Why, why is that allowed? Um, and you would never say, you know, or people, you don't say, I don't do reading. And if you think about the kinds of information that are, in some senses, almost destroying people's lives, but having really poor effects on the way the world works and on individuals and on people's ability to function in the way the world is, or even how their own data is being used, you know, by all of the companies that we are freely giving all our data to. Yeah. Statistical literacy would be so useful. And I don't mean that everyone needs to understand how equivariant graph neural network works, fairly obviously, but that they could understand more about what all that means, because so much of what's happening in their lives is being either governed by that or by not understanding it, they're going to make poor choices. And I almost feel like we failed as a field by not saying, hang on a minute, we need to work out a way to do this. We need to work out a way to make it so that people can have enough of an understanding that they can cope with the information they're being given. And I think that's really important. But I also think it's, it's clearly really hard because we have not managed it. And I don't think that's because we're mean or evil. I think it's actually really difficult. So I really think we need to debate it, think about it and take some responsibility for it about how do we, the people who are comfortable in that kind of statistical world, make it easier for those people who aren't because it's not easy. And so we need to think about how we do that and what we could do. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Today's guest is Charlotte Dean, Professor of Structural Bioinformatics at the Statistics Department of Oxford University, where until recently, she served as head of the department. Charlotte leads the immensely productive Oxford Protein Informatics Group. Um, and so, Charlotte, you've done more cool stuff than we're going to have time for to cover today. Maybe we should just start with the basics. Um, you know, what is a protein and why, why are they so foundational? The best description I've heard of a protein when trying to talk to people who don't work on them all the time is that they're the what's called the workhorses and the wizards of the cell. Proteins are the active molecules that do everything in your body. So more people have heard of genes and genetics because we've talked about those for a long time. But what genes are is a list of information. What the proteins are are the physical objects that do something. So the protein most people might have seen most recently is the spike protein of um, the COVID virus. That's a protein. And what we're trying to do there at the moment is bind molecules to it that stop it from acting, which of course helps us to be healthier. But the same thing is true for proteins just within your system about how to make them work better or turn them off for disease, but also just to understand how we work. These are the functional molecules. So we need to understand what they do, what they look like. And that tells us how we work and what we are. Um, excellent. That's super sharp right off the bat. Um, and so I guess uh, two things to sort of immediately glom onto. I guess there's sort of like the physical structure of the proteins. Is that one aspect? And then there's also the activity of those proteins. Are those sort of like the two things that concern us the most or is, is there some other? I guess they are two things that concern me the most and they're a good way of thinking about what we're what we do within my group. 
the physical structure of something is really a really big step towards understanding its function. So uh, the examples I give are things like egg boxes. An egg box is made of cardboard. So I could tell you, in order to carry eggs, you need a box made of cardboard. That would not be very helpful because unless that box has that particular shape, it doesn't actually hold eggs very well. And it's the same when you think about a protein. You need to know what its three-dimensional shape is because that is very important for its function. But the next stage on that is what you really want to know is what it does and how it does it. And there you get slightly more complicated because the structure may not be totally static during that. It might be, but it might not be. And it might be parts of it do different functions as well. So you're trying to pick apart all of those pieces so that you can really describe how this protein acts in amongst all the other proteins that it's probably interacting with and build something that creates functions that we would understand, be that from, you know, something that allows our muscles to bend and contract. So the proteins in there, they have to change their form and shape so that your muscle can contract and can expand. So you can pick things up or throw a ball to the proteins that just make up our hair so that it's nice and static and, you know, looks kind of like hair, sort of useful in its own way. I like that a lot. Um, so obviously you have this super foundational topic. Um, there are multiple aspects that add to its sort of complexity and relevance. Um, I think one of the most important things that makes a great scientist is when they know what to prioritize in the research. And so given this massive playing field, how do you actually prioritize what research your group works on? And is it, given that it's a statistical group, how do you essentially, does the statistical nature of your work inform that versus, you know, like physics-based approaches and things like that? I think prioritization is really, is always really hard. There's one of the massive joys of being an academic is you kind of just get to choose what you find exciting. And I think in my head, my prioritization is always thinking, what would I like to actually truly understand, knowing that that's not a tomorrow question, that might be a 20-year question, that might be a 40-year question. It's unlikely to be less than a five-year question. So what I'm trying to build is how do I get that understanding? How do I um, get to the place I want to be 20 years from now? And that's not just me, but lots of other groups working on these things. And then when you ask that question about is it the statistics, is it the physics? I think one of the key things about my group is we don't have a hammer. I don't think about the particular tools or the ways we might do this. We think about the question and then we go and explore as hard as we can with the things that are available to us. So sometimes the best way to do something is to use linear regression because actually it's very effective. But other times you're deep in equivariant graph neural networks. And then other times you realize that our kinds of ways of thinking about this are probably not the best solutions to the problem. And you're going to need to think in ways where you're bringing in much more physics, you're bringing in much more of that kind of expertise. And you have to decide then whether that's actually something we have the expertise within the group to do, or it's something we can demo might be exciting to do in that way, but actually there'll be other groups who will do that far better because their skills will actually be able to answer that question with the stuff we have. I suppose the other honest part of this in terms of prioritizing in a very short-term fashion is also related to the data that's available. If you want to answer these questions in the, you know, from a statistical point of view, one of the things you're always gonna need is some data. You can't just sort of randomly write something down and have everyone believe you. You're going to have to either be able to train on some data, test on some data and show that there's a relevance to this, the biological, the real world out there. And so there are some questions that I would love to work on, but we just couldn't even think about it at the moment because it's impossible to collect the data that would help do that. 
Whereas there are others that are slowly becoming very open right now as people's experimental techniques are changing and you suddenly go, oh, we could try that now. The data is just starting to be there and you want to be right at the edge of that all the time. Because if you wait till all the data is there, they won't collect it in the way you want. You want to influence how data is generated and collected if you're going to really make the best out of all of those things as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, as a quick side note, I've been doing my research for a new series on uh, evolution, life, and some of the basics of biology. And I've basically been looking um, at what the work that was being done in the 19th century and how effectively as data came about, our knowledge and the methods just like sprang from it. It's essentially like they, they had to change rapidly. So when you talk about as new experimental methods come out and you have that ooh moment that the data is now available, could you give us an example of that where effectively essentially a new gold mine is being formed from and you can start prospecting? The probably one of the most recent ones of those which we've worked on, so those people who've worked in genetics and genomics here will have heard of next generation sequencing. So this ability to be able to sequence very rapidly and very deeply to get lots of genetic sequencing, so lots of DNA sequences. One of the areas that my group works on a lot is in immunoinformatics antibodies, so our immune system understanding that. What has become possible, and really this is seriously possible only in the last two or three years, is the ability to sequence the circulating repertoire of antibodies. So instead of just sequencing the genome to know, if you like, the kind of basic sequence of the antibodies we can make, we can now sequence the repertoire. The diversity of the sequencing of the repertoire of antibodies in a human, there are different estimates on this because we don't know the answer. The theoretical diversity is at sort of the level of 10 to the 15. Probably the circulating diversity is 10 to the 10, 10 to the 12. So it's huge amounts there. And previously we had like information about maybe a thousand now we can regularly and easily get samples which are in the millions and the hundreds of millions. And that totally changes the game. That means that I can now start to explore what's happening in a human repertoire. So the human antibodies that are circulating in me compared to the human antibodies that are circulating in the person sitting next to me. An obvious example of that, which is I mean, I'm going to use COVID again because it's here and very present, but is a diseased and a healthy individual and a vaccinated individual. Previously, we'd be looking for like a single antibody marker, you know, because we couldn't sequence very much if this was five, 10 years ago. Now we can deep sequence all of these and we can start to see what is the difference between the circulating repertoire of somebody who is healthy. So the antibodies that somebody who hasn't ever had COVID is feeling fine. What does that look like? How does that compare to someone who's got COVID? How does that compare to someone who's recovered from COVID? How does that compare to someone who's been vaccinated? And then you can go through date times on that. And then you can go through you know, really interesting things like what's the difference through age on what I've just described, gender or immunocompromised versus people who have healthy immune systems. So there's all these things we can look at now. And that exploration is very non-trivial because the number of antibodies we're looking at here is huge. We have a small amount of error that comes from the sequencing, but it is also still just a sample. So when you talk to the experimentalists, they're like, we've got a million from each person. I'm like, that's great, but I've just told you I want 10 to the 10, 10 to the 12. A million's just a little sample for me. So you're still working out what that means in terms of if I have two samples of a million from two individuals, the overlap between them, what would you actually expect if they're meant to have, they've got 10 to the 10 in each? It's not clear that I expect any overlap whatsoever, even if they were identical. 
So you're trying to work out what you're expecting to see statistically and then also how you can use that information to help drive the types and forms of therapies you might make for a disease or how you might change things. So that kind of data. And then I guess this leads on to the other thing I mentioned, the excitement about doing that has also been the ability to um, explain to people the types of experiments where we can really add power. Because getting on board early means that I can talk to them and say, this data is really exciting. If you could collect it in this way rather than this way, I can actually tell you something useful rather than just randomly getting the data sets and kind of doing that post hoc processing where you're trying to make it work for the question, but the data is not quite in the right format, you know, hasn't quite been collected in the optimal way to do that. So that's a really good example, I think, of recent stuff where it's a complete step change in what's possible. And there are so many things you can now jump onto from doing that. We've jumped onto how do we structurally annotate all that information, you know, another stage further on. But those are all kind of built off that kind of change in experimental ability, which is incredible. Hey, everyone. We're now a few minutes into the episode. This is usually the part where a podcaster mentions a sponsor or talks about their Patreon page. I'm not going to do that, but I will ask two things of you. One, if you could leave a like, and two, if you could leave a comment. You see, Podcasting platforms are basically just giant search engines and people interacting with the videos by leaving comments is the main way that channels survive and grow. So I'm asking you to leave a comment. If you don't quite know what to say, well, just give me an idea for a future topic that you like considered for a future video. That's it. Back to the show. I'd like to uh, hit back on that topic in just a second with regard to the databases that you're making and essentially how you curate some of these uh, databases so that they are, you know, valid scientific uh agglomerations or whatever you know it's like as opposed to essentially just like just observational nice to know information but um before we do that um the work that you're talking about um so obviously you've brought up covid but for things like uh like immunotherapies and things like that is that also building the bedrock for a lot of the the knowledge for people to do that as well yes so um another way of thinking about this is We've gone from a world where we knew theoretically what types of antibodies humans could possibly have to a world where actually, so you've mentioned our databases. One of our databases is a collection of this kind of sequence data that people have made publicly available. And it's called observed antibody space. And it's got over one and a half billion sequences in it. So it's a lot of data. Most of that, so well over 50% is human sequencing. Some of it is mouse, some of it is camel. But if we just take the sort of bit that's human, that's a really good description of the types of antibodies that humans can make. So one way you can use that, if you think about making therapies, is one of the most important things for an immunotherapy is that it doesn't cause an immune reaction itself. Best way to describe this is if I gave you a mouse antibody, like just injected a mouse antibody into you, not a particularly nice thing to do, but it might be a very effective therapy, except for the fact that your immune system would go foreign protein and jump on it and destroy it. Yeah. It may even cause a huge immune reaction in you, which could be quite dangerous because if you have large oversized immune reactions, those can be can make you quite ill. But at the best case scenario, it doesn't even do that, but it certainly knocks out its ability to be a drug. So one of the big steps in immunotherapies is to make things which are human, humanized in some way, so they don't have that rejection cycle. What better way than to be able to do that than to say, look, I've got close on a billion human sequences. So I know what being human looks like. 
Now, it's not a complete description, but it's a big description. It starts giving you the ability to humanise something, to say what makes a, an antibody human as opposed to non-human, therefore safe and not safe. And there's a lot of good evidence that it can be used to do that kind of thing. So that's one example. It can also be used directly to identify potential therapeutics and that kind of thing. So you, there's lots of uses in that kind of way. Yeah, you might have just seen me shuffle the papers. I was jumping to the, um, the humanization of antibodies notes that I had taken and some of the questions that I wanted to ask of that. Because um, obviously it it is very cool. And to me, it seems like this is a topic where um, as very much an outsider, but someone who has his own problems with inductive leaps, um, you know, that when we're looking at la laboratory data and things like that, and the nature of the state that's coming in, there's this large inductive leap between essentially what are the structures that we're able to experiment on and reproduce. And obviously, you know, we also do have access to human tissues and things like that. But um, how is what we study in one, essentially according to one biological uh, system or structure or entity, how does this map onto the thing that we tend to care about most, which is, you know, human health and human applicability? And with kind of the immunoinformatics stuff I'm talking about here, it maps on so tightly, it's it's almost, it, it's kind of always there. So if you're developing immunotherapies at the moment, um, the major ways of doing, one of the major ways of doing it for something where you have actually a large population of people who are sick with the disease you're interested in is you go and do that large scale sequencing I'm talking about, and they will have lots of antibodies against it. So you have a natural kind of, there's a sequence these people have made that probably binds to what I'm interested in, and it's human because I sequenced it from a human. So that's one way of doing it. You can also do this now. Um, it's a sort of, it always sounds slightly odd to me, but you can create a kind of human immune system in animals. So actually you can do a similar experiment, but on an animal instead of on a human, where you have made their, you have mice uh, particularly been used for this, where they have a pseudo-human immune system. But once again, you're still not totally sure that's a human antibody. And then you can generate them kind of in, there's a technique called phage display where you use yeast and things to generate the antibodies. And at each of these, you're slightly further away from something that's human. So at each point, you're trying to say, well, I've got a sequence, a, a protein, an antibody that I can do the kind of biophysical characterization of, you know, there's good experiments doing this, that shows that it binds to the thing I'm interested in. But what I don't know because it's very hard to know until I put it in a person is how a human is going to react to this because it's a big protein. It's not a small molecule. So it will have some form of reaction to it. You know, unless it thinks it's totally human, it might get quite cross. And so the, the stage there is to how do I change the properties of this? And usually I, we would think in terms of changing the actual amino acids, the residues that make up, up the protein um, so that it, it becomes human but, and it's a big but, that it doesn't lose its structural function that I had at the beginning. So what you're trying to do is retain this binding properties and all of that and the same shape, but not, um, but remove from it anything that would make it not human. And so you've got these two competing things to optimize and both of them, if you want to do it on a computer, you're predicting both. You're predicting that this is going to keep the same structure and function and you're predicting this will make it more human. And it's really, uh, it's a difficult process because they may act in opposition to one another. They may be perfectly fine. Sometimes they are, and sometimes they're not. And we've worked through different techniques to try and do that. And I'm using humanization as one property there, but there are other properties which are useful here as well. So something we've looked at and others as well, there's a big difference between 
something you can make in a lab in a small quantity or even something that I might express inside my body and float around to something I can keep in a jar in a fridge. Yeah, that I can inject in large quantities into a person. So I want to then know that it doesn't aggregate. For example, that's a big problem. You do not inject people with aggregating proteins. It's very, very dangerous indeed. Um, I want to know that I can express a large amounts of it. So it can't be something that's difficult to make. It has to be very easy to make. I want, you know, there's a lot of properties like this. I don't want it to be too viscous. You know, it, it's going to be an injection. So those kinds of properties as well, you want to know all of that up front as early as you can. And they may also all act against your ability to have something that binds to the spot you're interested in. So primarily it must perform this function, but performing that function does not turn it into something that is a, a biotherapeutic that can be used as a therapeutic. Actually discovering an antibody that binds to something is really easy. Yeah, you, it, I don't want to say it's trivial. It's not trivial on a computer. It's trivial experimentally to generate an antibody that binds to X. What is much harder is to generate an antibody that binds somewhere specifically. So a particular area, you'll get an antibody that binds somewhere on this big globe, but I can't say where. If I want to know it binds here, that's much harder. And then the next stage, it's much harder again to have something that binds specifically there and has all these other properties as well as part of your optimization. That is really cool. And for those who have been on the edges of their seat wondering, I believe when you're talking about it, you said human, mouse, and camel. Yeah. Is that correct? Uh, That's correct. I, I think this needs to be addressed. Uh, okay. So I, I deliberately said camel. There are some other species in there, but camel, because camel is interesting. Um, camel is interesting. And you, this is another thing people might have heard about in the news or sort of picked up in the what's going on at the moment. We produce in our immune system antibodies. Antibodies are quite big molecules. And the best way to describe them is a big, big Y shape like this. And this bit at the top actually has two chains. So it's like that. So you've got a kind of shape, that shape, and this bit like this. So it's a big molecule. Yep. And the binding site is between those two chains on the end. It's right here between those two pieces. And they're very effective and people are being really interested in them. And most mammals have antibodies in their system. This is what they look like. There is another type of immune molecule that also floats around, but we don't have it. Camels have it. Sharks have something similar and there's a few others, but camels is then llamas, alpacas, that kind of animal. They have what are called nanobodies, which are much smaller. So instead of this giant Y shape I've just done with the two chains, they basically have one chain like this and it, their binding site is here on a single chain. So the actual thing you would use is an awful lot smaller as a, an entity you need to design and make. And they do the same thing as antibodies. They're really good at binding specifically and um, with high affinity to invaders, to camels, alpacas, yep, llamas. Anim animals that chew sideways. Yeah. And we don't know why they have them. We don't, but <laughs> they do. They also have normal antibodies as well. So they have a mixture of both. Now, the excitement about nanobodies is they are much smaller and simpler. Therefore, they're much easier to work with experimentally. And they're also much easier to work with computationally in terms of thinking about how to design them. The Sorry, interest, just to interject, when you say smaller, yeah. you mean as in the overall structure is yes. smaller. Okay, cool. Yeah, All right. so quite a lot smaller. So basically you're saying instead of having to deal with this huge molecule like this, I just have to deal with this. So it's a much, much smaller thing that you can work with, which in theory does this same kind of binding job and can be used in very similar ways. 
And so there's a lot of people who have been working, trying to look at nanobodies for this. There's some very exciting work that was done by the Rosalind Franklin Institute in Oxford about showing nanobodies binding to things. And they look like they're going to be, they could be an amazing sort of addition to our armory of bi biotherapeutics. But, and this is why it's an interesting thing in, in my world, of course, there's far less data about them. We've got very little sequencing data about them. Not that many people have sequenced. I mean, I think some companies have sequenced, but there's not much publicly available data of these large scale sequencing sets, say about nanobodies that I've been talking about for antibodies. And in the same way, there's much less information about their structures. You know, there's a, I don't know, seven, 800 nanobody structures, whereas you're more like four and a half, 5,000 antibody structures. So you've got so much less data to work with but potentially you're on the edge of having something which is simpler and easier to do. But then you have another problem, of course, because they're clearly not human. Yeah. So that thing I've just been talking about. So all the other developability issues become easier because they're smaller. So all the other things about, will they aggregate? Will they do this? Yep. A little bit easier there. And then all of a sudden loads harder on the, well, is it human? Well, no, it's clearly not human. <laughs> but the next question is, what do you need to do to something like that to say that it, it's safe? Yeah. And there are now, there's certainly one nanobody, which is a, a registered therapeutic. So it's certainly possible to do, but it's an interesting, I think at the moment, a difficult and interesting problem, statistically speaking, about how you would predict that and how you would build these things well. But we're starting to work on it. Yeah. And I guess the, the good news is that once humans have solved all of our health problems that we can then immediately start on camels, llamas and alpacas next, because um, <laughs> you know, they've earned their spot. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, on the issue of databases, because obviously, you know, a lot of your, I'm not saying, I don't know a portion, but, you know, you've done an immense amount of uh, creating these databases. Um, could you talk about one, just give us an overview of what the databases you are, you have created and what, like, what they are and why they matter, just like a broad overview? So I'll give, I'll try and give an overview of the main databases we have. So nearly all the databases that we have are around the area of um, immunotherapeutics, so antibodies, nanobodies, that kind of thing. So I've mentioned one already. So that was the observed antibody space. So that's a collection of all of that um, sequencing data. And the reason we built that was actually what most people were doing, even if they were making their data publicly available, was that they were just dumping out the raw experimental data. And you can't do very much with that. It's an awful lot of processing to turn that into um, protein sequence information that you can use, as in this is a, an antibody sequence that I could build models of, that I could do other things with. And the other reason that sort of we wanted to make that, so we wanted to collect that data and curate it in a consistent way. And that's also important because there are several different pipelines that you can use to take the raw data and, if you like, curate it up to the sequences. And they all have slightly different impacts and effects on what happens because they make slightly different choices about how to handle the errors. And people go, oh, that might not be very important. But we've demonstrated multiple times that if you take two data sets and you run them through two different pipelines, you can see differences between them that you think are statistically significant and interesting and are not. They are caused by the use of the two different pipelines. So for us, that curation was really important. So that database is to allow people to have access to that information in a carefully curated way. And so they can actually just get on and do the research from it. And we built it for ourselves, but obviously we just make it freely available. And we keep that, trying to keep that constantly updated, you know, as far as we can, but that's difficult to update automatically. It's more kind of collecting and keeping it going. And so those, that's a really kind of important question um, and hopefully useful. 
and most of our databases come from a similar place. So the, the oldest database we have is called SABDAB. Now, SABDAB is a collection of all of the publicly available antibody and nanobody structural data. And I suspect most people listening won't even have heard of the Protein Data Bank. The Protein Data Bank was started in the 1970s, and it is a database entirely dedicated to collecting structural information on proteins as people publish them. And I think it was back, it was, it was either in the 80s or the 90s, it would became, for all, I think for every journal, if you wanted to publish that you had a protein structure, you had to deposit it in the protein data bank. You could have maybe a year's delay, but it had to go in there to try and do this. And there are now, um, I think there might even be close to a couple of hundred thousand protein structures in there. It's a very large resource and it's brilliant. Problem for us when you work on a specific type of protein is you type that protein name in and you don't get that data back because it's not built like that. So we built something that basically searches the PDB in a very different kind of way. So the protein data bank and collects that. And once again, it's about presenting the data on antibodies in an antibody centric view with it all curated consistently, telling you what the antigen is that's binding to it, giving you all that so that you can then build directly off it anything you're interested within that. The next database is Therasabdab, and this is really something that's very useful for the kind of work we do, but I think is useful for others thinking about similar problems. So what we do there is we're collecting all known, so the World Health Organization authorizes therapeutics as they come out, and antibodies are included on that, and what we're doing is when things are entering clinical trials, stage two of clinical trials, we are collecting that information but then we are taking that information and linking it to everything else we know about. So in our case, that's primarily linking it to, do we know a structure of this? So is there actually already a structure of this antibody? Can we model it very accurately? Usually the answer to one or other of those is a yes, big yes, because it's the way with therapeutics. What other information do we have on this therapeutic? And so it allows us to see what the kind of set of therapeutics that are coming through is not just the ones that are already licensed and people are using and you know in the clinic and people are being given but the kind of 600 700 that are on their way and the properties of those and how the the field is changing in terms of what becomes therapeutic and then our most recent database was set up in um, march 2020 and it's called cobabdab and we did this really because we i suppose in some sense because we could and we thought it would be useful for everybody so these databases we built, mostly they do automatic updating or semi-automatic updating because that's how we wanted them to work. So SABDAB is it's completely automatic, except it every so often sends the couple of people who are curators on it emails to say, I'm not sure this is correct. And then they have to go and check. But that's all it does. And Therasabdab, we do a, an update every so often, but it's semi-automatic again to be able to do this. But we actually have to push a button to make it go. Because we had that expertise, we decided something that would be a really useful data set for everybody who's interested in developing biotherapeutics against COVID, but also to understand it, was to collect and curate all of the information of known binders to coronaviruses. So when we started out, this was primarily SARS-CoV-1 and MERS, and then very quickly, SARS-CoV-2 overtook that, and you know, I I think it's about four and a half thousand entries now, but I haven't looked recently, so it may be more than that. And every single one of these is an antibody with its full sequence, which is known to bind, where it binds, and every piece of information we can get about it linked back to structures or models or any other information we have, because it allows you very quickly to see where on the 
virus these antibodies are all targeting if there's overlaps if they're different it allows you to build up a picture of what we actually understand about the surface of this and the different things and it, it's been used an enormous number of times and people are now really helping us i mean for about the last it didn't take long after we'd set it up because lots of people know we work on this kind of thing. And once we got it out there, we told everybody, if you've got anything you want to stick in this, just tell us. And so people just keep sending us their data so we can keep adding it in. So we have this resource for people to be able to actually basically accelerate our ability to understand how to develop the best therapeutics against it. Um, and I'd love to be able to do that for every disease, but it's a lot of work. So I doubt it will happen regularly for everything. Yeah, on the topic of for every disease, so I guess by way of analogy, you know, you talked about um, what you have for COVID and effectively like which, uh, like I guess which proteins bind and uh, where they bind um, for another disease, again, like cancer immunotherapy with the idea that you'd say like, okay, for this variety of cancer, for this type of cancer, for this mutational set, would it, like, how specific would it get for some of these other things, like the most obvious one, like cancer? Well, cancer, you'd have to be relatively specific because you have so many different types of cancer. And even people who are showing the same symptoms might have very different types. So I think that one's really complex. It's easier with other diseases. So another area where there is actually a huge amount of data is something like Ebola, um, so there's lots of known binders to Ebola and you can treat it kind of as one thing because actually a bit like COVID, the, the actual kind of number of proteins that are involved in the disease itself is quite low. So the number of places it can bind and what it can be doing is low. I think when you get to something more complex, it will take some time to unpick at what level you need to do this. One way to do it is, I mean, my first instinct is you just collect everything and then you start dividing it up as you begin to see how it cracks and falls apart because actually your assumption that this can all be compared is always a bad one to start with. But it's a you've got to start somewhere. So you, you start and then you go, OK, actually, I need to specialise to here because I can compare within this set sensibly and I can generate information from that data. Yeah. And sorry, because I know you've essentially addressed this question, but I'm just going to be the host and ask the dumb question because I got to. Um, so to sort of recap, is the reason, does the, the sim relative simplicity of viruses make it essentially a, an attractive area to start looking at this research? Um, you know, or is that incorrect? It Feel free to just call me out. Yeah. It's an interesting question. So one way to look at this is before the pandemic, okay, an awful lot of drug companies had completely given up on antivirals because they thought it was really hard. I think they've changed their mind now a lot. Um, so it's a difficult question to answer. I mean, the majority of, actually, I don't know if that's strictly true, but a very large number of the biotherapeutics that have been developed are things for things like cancer. And there are two parts to that. One is because actually, because antibodies are so good at being so specific and targeting so well, that they can deal with something that is as complex and difficult to target as cancer. Um, another thing is because of the self-system thing, so you can use them in all sorts of really quite exciting ways. And another thing is because biotherapeutics require you, you, you can't take them as a little pill. Yep, they would be digested by your stomach. They're a protein. So they have to be injected in. So on average, they're going to have to be for things which are relatively serious. If you're going to make biotherapeutics, you don't make them against the common cold. Because even if they worked, people still wouldn't queue up for them because it's like, I, I, I'd rather have a cold than go to the doctor and have an injection. 
Yeah. So they tend to be for things that are quite serious in that way. Um, I think, so it's difficult really to say, I think one of the things that's not truly understood yet, and it's something that we've played around with a bit and others have thought about as well, and it, it is a really good statistical question, and, and is there must be targets for which small molecules will work better, and there must be targets for which like biotherapeutics will work better. And kind of by experience, you can start to see those things happen, but nobody's really done the analysis to say, actually, you should just go this way or you should go that way. It's still very much a kind of depends what the company's thinking about, depends how they think the market will react and all those kind of things. And I think there's a lot more to understand there. So I would struggle to say <laughs> the best answer there. I think it's actually really difficult um, to do that. So I guess like the, the science of that decision process is still very much in development. Yeah. And I think that I think there will be, I think it will become something where people will give it quite a lot of thought because biotherapeutics are much more expensive therapy and they're more expensive to make, but they are cheaper to get to that point of making because they're faster in the early stages of development. Small molecules much slower in the early stages of development, but once you've got a small molecule, they're cheap. Um, so it's very different economics around it and all sorts of other things as well. So it's a, I think it's going to be more than we think it is that goes into how you develop that. It's not a simple model. It's a, there's lots of things to optimize as always. You're trying to optimize how quickly can I get treatment to people, but also how do I make sure I get a treatment to everybody? There's no point in making a treatment that no one can actually ever afford to use, for example. Cool. And uh, dumb question number two. So as you pointed out at the beginning, you know, a lot of people when they think about like genomics and that takes a lot of people's attention, I'm going to make a false analogy using genomics. And then if you just correct it so I can understand better. So like, I guess what I'm wondering is, um, you know, when you're looking at genomic data, there are you know, SNPs, there's this individual variability even for the same entity. Uh, proteins, on the other hand, are they not, I guess, infected with that noise? Is, is there some individual level variability, protein level variability, where they still fit in the same sort of like clade or something like that? Yeah, so basically there is individual variability. When you have SNPs, well, if you have changes in your DNA, they could be outside protein coding regions, in which case they have no, no influence on what I'm talking about. If they're in a protein, there's two different types. They're called synonymous and non-synonymous. So a lot of those changes won't change the protein sequence at all, but some will. On average, most of those changes, effectively the protein looks identical, so the overall shape is the same, and the change is not somewhere that affects the function of the protein. But sometimes it does. Sometimes it makes it a little bit more functional, a little bit less functional. Um, kind of classic examples. There, there are lots of sort of classic examples of this where it's a single amino acid change can make a protein an awful lot less functional, and some people have it and some people don't. And, you know, when you have the things when they talk about eye color or things like that, actually what's happening is the proteins that are made are changed by the changes that are different in the genetic code between the individuals. So there are differences. They tend not to change the overall shape of the protein, and usually they have minimal changes on the function. But serious diseases, so usually if when people are talking about SNPs that are correlated to disease, lots of those correlate directly through to exactly everything I'm interested in, because they go, it's a change in the DNA sequence, what that actually means is a change in the protein structure or in the functional site of that protein, which means it doesn't bind to what it should do as well as it should, or it binds to the wrong thing, or it doesn't fold at all, so it doesn't make the protein, so you are lacking something you should have. 
And those direct correlations are, you know, it's not easy to fix, but at least you can start to understand how the thing comes about and what you can do about it. Cool. Uh, yeah, that, that, that is really helpful. I, I appreciate that. Um, it's always just nice getting that recapping of the, the, the basics again. Um, uh, since, you know, we, we tend to have a, a statistical audience here, um, one would hope uh, that uh, otherwise I have no idea what they're doing here listening. Um, but yeah, um, you know, obviously we, we described a large amount of variability and there's these uh, experimental issues um, that you've talked about. What what are the aspects that statistics and statistical modeling are really unique in their ability to sort of exploit and, uh, or at least help in that learning and discovery process? Where does statistics and probabilistic um, modeling, is there is there a unique place for it or is it just, it's one alternative and you have to play it by ear? I think it does have a unique place within this, partly because, um, it, it, I had a colleague who describes this better than me. Um, we tend to think of things as deterministic in a, when we think about ourselves or biology, but actually it's much more complicated than that. If I go to the very, very, very micro level, we know it's stochastic because the proteins are like floating around in the cell and they bash into one another and this might happen and enough of that happening means that this will happen. And you can get even smaller than that and it's definitely stochastic, okay? But then the question is, if I you know, move my thumb, my thumb moves, so that's deterministic, you know, that it definitely happens. But then it gets all kind of stochastic again because if you have lots of people doing something, they don't all do the same thing when they should do it. Or, you know, people, if you think about, I mean, Maybe hair growth is a good example. Your hair doesn't all grow at the same rate at, um, all over your head. You know, it'd be way easier in a world that it, it did. But I suspect most people have noticed that, you know, yeah, some people's beards, part of the beard grows and the rest of it doesn't for ages or whatever. Or, you know, so it's it's not quite how you imagine it. And one of the reasons I think that statistics is so powerful within all of this is that I'm not trying to write down an absolute rule that says if X happens, then Y will happen. Yep. And that tends to be how we like to write this kind of stuff down. Instead, I'm saying, effectively, based on all this prior information, <laughs> what is the most likely outcomes and the probabilities of these happening? And it actually suits the system and the data really well, I think, um, to think in that way, because actually that's more like what is actually occurring. It is actually a chance of this happening versus that happening in almost everything we deal with. So even if I think about something like binding, you know, a small molecule binds to a protein. Is that a yes, no question? Well, it's a yes, no question, except it's not because it would depend, um, even if it's very high affinity, because in the real system, there'll be an amount of protein, an amount of small molecules, an amount of competitors. So there's a chance of the docking event. There's a chance, how strong does it need to be? How much thermal energy? There's, a, And that's really difficult to express kind of any other way whereas if you turn it into a statistical question it's it, it all falls out within the way we think about it and then I think the other thing which is very obvious is biology is a, a beautifully rich data place to work in we don't have all the clean data the data is horrible it's very messy but it's incredibly data rich at the moment and I think it will continue to be so and that is a lovely place to be playing with um, you know statistical tools machine learning tools because of course that's what you want. You want to be in a data rich world because that allows you to do things that, you know, are just impossible where you don't have that information. 
Yeah. Um, on the topic of uh, machine learning and uh, statistical machine learning, since everyone has their own definition, although I've noticed that my favorite people tend to congregate around similar definitions for some of these things, uh, what is your definition of uh, machine learning in particular and its role in sort of statistical inference? Guess, um, I guess I don't really have a true definition of machine learning. I try and step away from that and sidestep it all the time because you're caught between all sorts of different pieces. And like I say, I don't have a hammer. I'm interested in things that help me solve the problems. In terms of what I work on, where machine learning has proved very powerful it's, is its ability to absorb the masses amounts of data. So thinking about, um, well, I am presuming that most people listening have at least vaguely seen that AlphaFold has come on the scene from DeepMind. So DeepMind have created a program that is able, using deep learning to, on a large number of occasions, actually predict the structure of a protein given only its sequence. And that is an amazing step forward. And the reality is that it was able to do this partly because there'd been a lot of work previously within academic groups that they were building off and they're very open and honest that they were watching this and going ah that looks like we might be able to do that one day and partly because you have this huge amount of data they could feed into the machines so that's the protein data bank i was talking about earlier all of that available structural information and that's kind of the great thing about machine learning in the world i am in is the, the sense that we probably do have enough data to if you like really let it loose to be able to say, okay, learn how to do this without, um, and then it's all about how you create, create that data, how you check it for biases and how you work out how you can do it within the compute resource you have, um, which is an, always an interesting problem. So I think more in those kinds of terms rather than anything else. And, you know, defining machine learning, I, it's in some senses, I have a very simple definition. It is the love child between statistics and computer science. Um, and that is machine learning, and that will do. I like that a lot. <laughs> that, that will do. Um, if you don't mind, since uh, you brought the topic of AlphaFold, um, and a lot of people's knowledge of it pretty much stops at the press releases, and I've had a, had a number of... Con I'm fairly, almost entirely ignorant of this. However, one of the things that um, sort of notes me about when people are essentially getting that secondhand summary of the press release that it was treated as if, you know, basically deep learning came out of just nowhere, just plugged something in and popped in. And I was just, just it's like, one's like, no, it's like, I couldn't help but think it's like, I suspect that these are very smart people who, did they not do a literature review? Did they not learn from the immense amount of other statistical work that was going on? And did that not inform, for example, the, um, the architecture of how they selected things, you know, um, all that sort of sci scientific work. Um, it sounds like if, if I'm right, databases that statisticians created were monumental in helping to feed this information in. Can you sort of, where does AlphaFold actually fit with the rest of this research? And what did they build off and what did was truly innovative? So, okay, it, it, I can kind of build this in pieces. So you have from the 1970s, the Protein Data Bank, which is collecting all of the publicly available structures that are solved. And that's been growing in size through time. And then um, back in the 1990s, so people had started trying to do this problem of, if I have a protein sequence, can I computationally predict its structure? 
right from the get-go, from the very beginnings, people wanted to be able to do this. And then in the early 1990s, people started saying, oh, I think I'm getting quite good at that. So a, a very wise man called John Malt set up something which is called CASP, which was the Comparative Assessment of Protein Structure Prediction, because he didn't believe people were getting quite good at it, and he was right. And what they did with CASP was they said, right, we will get crystallographers and people who are solving protein structures experimentally to tell us the sequences of things they're just about to solve. We will let you predict them computationally, so you can't cheat at all because nobody actually knows what the answer is yet. And then we will get the structures and we'll have a big meeting in December and go, we're all rubbish. Let's learn from what we don't understand and try and do this again. And people will enter their algorithms and we'll keep going. So that's been going for a long time. I think the cast that um, AlphaFold make their big bash at was CASP 14, and it happens every couple of years. Now, what that has meant over that period of time is we have been having kind of improvements and steady improvements in our ability to do protein structure prediction. Some of it was just, it's just driven by a lot of the code got tidied up. That was the first thing that happened. So it didn't do stupid things because it became publicly very stupid when you did a stupid thing. And then it became, you know, new ideas started entering in. So there were jumps about how we use the information. There, you know, there were all sorts of pieces. But the big jumps started happening. I'm not going to get the dates exactly right, but kind of uh, must be early 2000s, actually. No, a bit later than that, maybe 2006, 7, 8, that kind of time, where groups started to use techniques that predicted contacts within protein structures. And they showed that there was direct information. This was statistically you could extract this. So not these were not machine learning techniques at this point. It was a it wasn't mutual information you were trying to do. Um, but mutual information is a very simplistic way of describing what they were looking for. They were looking for correlated positions to say that this position and this position have a relationship with one another. So they will be close in three dimensional space. And there were some really nice um, statistical methods that were built to do that, that predicted these contacts. And they caused a step change in our ability to predict protein structures. And so the main two groups that really showed that were Chris Sanders' group and David Jones's group, um, where they showed these techniques and they wrote some really quite clever ways of being able to solve matrix algebra and things to be able to do this. And people were like, ooh, that's good. And then the next stage up, this is still, DeepMind is still not involved at all. People very quickly worked out that Instead of doing that, if you inverted commas properly, mathematically, you could, of course, feed it all into some form of machine learning algorithm because you knew exactly what you wanted it to learn was these contacts. And it turns out those methods were really good at this. And you knew kind of what you wanted to feed into it because we'd understood the basis of where these contacts came from and what they were doing. And we, the field was at kind of that stage, let's say, five, six years ago, getting better and better at about that. What happened then was the previous CASP, so not this one, so three years ago now, DeepMind entered CASP with the original AlphaFold. So this isn't original AlphaFold that we're talking about now that solved it all. This is brand new AlphaFold 2, but they don't like you to say that. It's AlphaFold now. But they, they entered CASP with AlphaFold. And it was doing that kind of contact prediction with deep learning using kind of things that other people have been thinking about, but smarter deep learning techniques and really well software engineered. And it did really well. Yep. It was the, I think it was the best method that entered, but it, you know, still hadn't nowhere near solved the problem, but it had basically it had taken everyone else's engineering and gone, actually, we can do that a bit better. And they really did. I should be fair. And then everyone else was like, oh, that's good. And so we, everyone was thinking about this and building new ways. What they did for AlphaFold 
two, so the program that came out this time, was they went, we reckon there's enough data and that our computers are big enough that we, instead of trying to predict these kind of distances, so those are invariant properties of the molecule. So if I rotate it or translate it, it doesn't change. That distance is the same. I want to directly predict the coordinates of the molecule when I do this. Now, the issue with that until very recently is the methods couldn't handle that very well. Mathematically, um, you then had an issue because if you put the molecule in in a different orientation, it was different to the machine learning algorithm. And the change there were a set of methods that were developed, which were called equivariant graph neural networks that didn't have that issue. So you could use directly predict the coordinates. And that's the step that they made that, to be honest, no one else had really made. There were a few academic groups who were playing with this, but they made that jump to do the, the it's sort of called end-to-end -end prediction. It isn't really, but it's kind of more like you're directly predicting the coordinates. They have to do some minimization things at the end to make it really work. So it's kind of like it's, I see it as part of the progression of people building on understanding and going, we could do this, so I could do that next. And it's just like in academic research and they built off that. And what they've done is incredible and amazing. I do not want to kind of go, that's not, no, it's, it's an incredible tool that they've given us and it, a real understanding. And there were already academic groups who've done in, I won't say impersonations of it, it's a bit rude, but other versions of it. So David Baker's Rosetta groups released one. There's a, I think, Mohammed al Qureshi has released another one. So there's there's lots of other groups who are already doing this as well as or better than they have done it because it it kind of was in the the steps. The things that they were able to do that the academic groups couldn't do was, of course, they could test lots of these architectures much faster than we can. We just, you know. I was asked the question once about, well, well, I didn't an academic group do this. And the answer was, well, they probably would have done in the end. You know, to be honest, I could see it coming. But the other part of it is the compute resource they had access to, never mind the very intelligent people in the large group and team that I couldn't possibly get funding to have to be able to do it. The compute resource, I could train AlphaFold, but I could train it once. I can't train it. 50, 60, 70, 100 times to work out what actually is important and which version of which I should use to optimize the best possible kind of set of pieces across the network. I mean, I just don't, you know, and I'm not hugely compute rich, but I'm okay. You know, I have access to very large computers here and access to supercomputers and I have my own clusters, but I couldn't have done that. And I don't think there's any academic group in the world that actually had access to the compute just to be able to do that level of testing. So I think when people are talking about AlphaFold, there's a whole mixture of things. It's truly built off the work that has been done by, you know, people working as computational biologists, statisticians, computer scientists in this field for ages. And it's built off the amazing work the experimentalists have done to collect that amount of data. Would never have been possible without that data just sitting there waiting to be done. And it's built off the fact that the resources were there. So if they picked up that problem, they could actually explore it to a level that I would never have been able to do. Now, that doesn't mean I would have been able to do it even if I could have done that. I'm not claiming, you know, that I could, that I would have done, but I, I have to be honest and say I couldn't have done it either. You know, I, if I had that resource, there was a chance. Without that resource, there isn't. So I think it's, it's interesting. It's also telling you something about how some of these problems are moving. And I don't think that's just in biology. I think, you know, there are examples all over the place where because the 
data or the ability to process it is sitting outside academia, the necessity to collaborate or work in different ways will become more and more important in this kind of field, I think. So it's a very long answer. I hope that's okay. No, that was, that was a great answer. I really, and I really enjoyed it. And I wanted to just inject some words like this, like, so it's not just because you neglected to just put in one more for loop, just you know, for these 10,000. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that is really cool. Um, one thing that as an outsider, having you know seen your group growth uh, while I was at Oxford, um, that stuck out was that your group as well has software engineers, I believe. Is that correct? Research software engineers. Um, and I've seen other groups in clinical informatics start to grow that and start to prioritize that as an essential part of them growing their team. Could you one answer why and then two sort of like what do they do and what what is their interest? So. I think, and I think this relates a bit to my previous answer, we're moving into a world now where um, the size of data or even the size of program you want to write to answer some of these questions is difficult for a single individual. You're sort of, it, it, you know, there's still plenty that will be done like that, but we're more and more getting to the stage that something truly useful will end up being written by eight or nine individuals um, because it's really hard. And part of the... I think I do think it's an issue in academic science, but I think it's one that is, if you like, hard to solve in the short term. So part of the issue in academic science is there is little or no reward for getting your code to a state where everybody can use it. And I don't just mean other people who are interested in what you do. Most of us behave pretty well and we build our code to something that when we publish the paper and we put it out there, someone else who thinks a bit like we do, works in a similar area, can pick it up and with a few emails backwards and forwards can get it to run. Yeah, that's that's usually, and that's good code. There's plenty of code we've picked up where that doesn't happen at all and we're meant to be experts at this and we can't get anything to run. So, You just described the last like three weeks of my life, by the way, but yes, please continue. Yeah. But I think that's what I want to say is I think that's everyone's life. And it it and that's why I think it's an issue, because there's no reward for doing the behavior which you would really like, which is people took it all the way to a perfect package. Yeah. And that you couldn't publish until you actually had a perfect package that was easily runnable. You know, you just plugged it in. This would definitely happen when you did this. And you didn't have to know any secrets about a flag that nobody had told you about. Yeah. Um, and so the purpose of having the research software engineers is to have some people in the group whose job it is where we develop things that start to become very useful and usable by the community. So that might be our databases. That's one of the areas they do do work with. Once, you know, the if you like, the students or the postdocs who've been working on them have gotten to a certain stage, maintaining a database and making it beautiful is, you don't get another publication. Um, you got the publication when you put it out, ta-da, but it's, in my mind, totally worthless if you haven't kept updating it for the next 10 years, but PhD students, gone. So the, the complexity of the software is high and the it's not pickable upable by somebody directly and straight away, which are things that we would like it to be. So in my head, it's the areas within the group where we think that there's going to be, or I should be more, so it's not even where we think there's going to be, where we already start having that demand. What I want is the research software engineers to be there to sort that software out, to keep it up to date, to deal with issues like when you change Python version from Python 2 to Python 3, you know, and you can't solve every issue. This is not to make perfect software. That's the job of software companies. That's what might happen inside a pharmaceutical company if they want to really recode everything, or it might happen with Microsoft. But I 
Not always perfect there either. But what you're trying to do is get your code to a state where people can pick it up, they can run it, and they know exactly the kinds of things it's going to do. And then for me, the other part of this, and the reason that we got software engineers in the group as well, that I was able to like afford to do that, was a lot of the work I do in the group turned out to be of a great deal of interest to pharmaceutical companies. Now, we make everything freely available. It's all done under open innovation. So everything I do is freely published. All the code is totally open. You can have it. Turns out pharma then were like, oh, this is scary. Yep. And didn't know what to do with it, which always surprised me a bit. And so they were asking me lots of questions. And the problem was that my answer to them was, well, I don't have time to do that because, you know, I, I answer questions from other academics, who are, but you're a big pharmaceutical company. You know, I thought you could just pick this up and work it out. And actually what they wanted, and this is why we set up the software engineers, and they don't spend all their time doing this, but a small amount of their time doing this, they can answer those questions. So they can help pharmaceutical companies get the software set up, and we can have the companies pay for their time to do that. So they're not paying for the software, software's free, you can have it. But they pay for the time of those people to help them get it to run and work within their settings. And that's brilliant for me, because of course it means that the group can afford to have the software engineers and they spend a small amount of their time doing that work with pharma companies and the rest of their time they're just making our code better and looking after it and it's really interesting because it also that interaction with the pharmaceutical companies helps to tell us what's important and what's getting picked up and what really is driving their questions and where we need to think about other things so it feels like a win-win all round but I'm still new to this we've been doing it for I guess uh, might be eight or nine years now, so I shouldn't say new, but it's still a learning thing about how to do that kind of interaction. Yeah, when you said when you immediately said I'm still new to this, I was like, I don't know, I, I'm pretty sure that like I saw like the the switch. It's like, oh, she, she has software engineers now. Um, yeah, um, but yeah, um, just uh, given uh, we only have time for about two and a half more questions. Um, but my question next was, does this? So you talked about how um, software engineers help with your, I guess, your research algorithms. I mean, I flubbed that, but you, does this also apply to your database work as well? Yes, so very much so. I mean, I'm probably one of the best examples in terms of what the research software engineers can do is something like the databases. So databases are a really difficult thing in the academic world in the sense that you get the reward when you first do all the collation and the database gets to a size which is sensible you publish the paper then and everyone's like oh excellent database and then of course the student leaves and then the database effectively stops and dies and goes away so one of the reasons i kept talking about in terms of our databases is this idea of as far as we can make them we make them automatically updating self-updating so there's minimal work for another person to keep this thing up to date if we can can be hard, but that's what we go for. And then that's a really good thing to have software engineers on because, of course, every time the architecture underlying operating system, the computers changes, you can have issues about your databases or if there are new security patches, they can cause you issues with your databases. Or when somebody changes the format that you're pulling data down from, you have issues with your database. So all of those things, the kinds of things that you don't get a reward of a new paper when you do all of that work. But if you don't do it, the database becomes dead and I didn't, we didn't build the databases for the papers, but it's unfair on students to make them do huge amounts of work that doesn't lead to benefit for their career. So you're trying to use the research software engineers are an obvious place to be able to keep that going and really keep the databases clean and functional and working as hard, as well as we can. Still, I'm never arguing perfect. We are, 
um, definitely at the level of a cottage industry, not at the level of, you know, a, a super conglomerate giant across the world. Yeah. Hey, everyone, we're now in the final stretch of this interview. If you haven't yet left a like or a comment, I'd really appreciate it if you did. If you already have left a comment, just leave a second comment. Maybe talk about what you're uh, studying or what you're working on or your field. I really like to know more about our audience, especially the wide variety of scientists that we have listening to the show. That's it. And enjoy the rest of the episode. One sort of uh, persistent theme throughout several of these um my most recent episodes is effectively that there are certain very important scientific endeavors that aren't essentially rewarded in the formal academic apparatus. And so obviously, you know, like database, not only just creation, but maintenance um, is, there's not that formalized mechanism, it's respected. Um, so interpersonally, it's very well respected. But as far as that thing that says like, well, will you get a, a, a secure job, things like that, um, Will people actually see what you did as opposed to you have to know them to know how good they are? Um, some other ones very quickly in that are, you know, as I said, database maintenance, uh, good maintainable software um, in those packages, um, and also uh, open, more generally open education and open access education where effectively a lot of people who are spending a lot of their time thinking about how can we better train our people, how can we get this sort of information out to people more? There's no formalized mechanism. But um, I doubt we have time to cover that compared to uh, our final two questions today. The first one is, you know, obviously we've talked about quite a bit. I'd love to have you on the show again several more times, but I know you're busy. <laughs> but anyway, what is um, an important question that I forgot to ask? What is an important topic that I forgot to cover? I think the given who I hope listens to this, one of the questions that it would be cool to answer is, what would you say to anyone thinking about doing this for their career? Um, because it's true, um, an academic career is difficult and risky and you know painful and all those things, highly competitive. But I always want to say to people about this, I love what I do. It is totally amazing to, you know, working with students and postdocs, but also being able to answer questions that no one else has ever looked at don't get them right necessarily, but at least I move the field on and I'm allowed, you know, sometimes I know something that no one else in the world knows. And I want, I think that we as a community, and that's not just statisticians, but more broadly in terms of research and science, we need to say more proudly just how exciting it is to be part of that, to be able and useful to be able to do all those things. And it goes alongside, it isn't an easy job, but it's so much fun. And so that's always the thing I want people to say, you know, do you like what you do? Yes. And I think everyone should think about it and, you know, have mechanisms that make it as open and available to everybody to do as we possibly, possibly can. Yeah. One of the things that has um, always impressed me is uh, because basically I got my start on like real work. I was uh, working for Anna Shu. And uh, one of the things that always impressed me about this area of bioinformatics and clinical informatics is that um, the discovery process is always present. So it's not just that you're making some A-B test algorithm to make someone click something. You, you don't really discover that much other than whether you should give them A or give them B to increase the number of clicks. But um, in these bioinformatics, clinical informatics uh, fields, the discovery process is there. And it does feel a little bit like, you know, we're out on the high seas um, looking for like intellectual plunder or loot or something. and it's hard to capture or even really describe that sense of adventure, but it's very exciting. Yeah, 
I think I, I'd never thought about it about being out on the high seas, but it is. It's there oh is yeah, a you're level. captain on a ship. You're captain on a ship. Go on, sorry. That would just be so cool. But it is. Oh, it it is genuinely an exciting thing to be allowed to do and have the privilege to do. And it's also, I think, something that isn't said often enough. It's also a very collaborative endeavor. You know, it is competitive. There's other groups across the world. I want to do things, you know, well, and I'd love to do them first. But actually, I spend most of my time working and talking with other people, both inside my group and across other groups. And so it's it's a really, you know, it really is fun and an exciting thing to do. So I, I, I am forever trying to convince people that you should want to do this. I'm okay if they don't want to, because, you know, I do it. But I don't want anyone to feel shut out of it or be a bit like, oh, that might be a bit hard. Yeah, it might be a bit hard, but it's worth it. Cool. And if you don't mind, I'll squeeze in one tenth of a question before the final question. Um, yeah. You talked about people getting involved very quickly in like one paragraph. How did you get involved? Oh, okay. <laughs> very quickly in one paragraph. I'll do my best. The hockey question. Yeah, it's basically the hockey question. So when I was an undergraduate, um, as part of my undergraduate degree, you had to do in your final year, you actually did an extended long project, which was basically the entirety of your last year. I, at that time, was playing university level sport. I was actually at Oxford and I was playing blues hockey and I had been elected the captain of the blues hockey team. So what I needed was a project that I could do in my fourth year where I could go and play sport a lot. I played several other sports as well, but the important thing was because I was captain of the team, that meant every Wednesday I had to go out for the hockey matches and there was training at various points of time. I was totally intending to do all my work, you know, but I wanted, I needed a supervisor who would understand this. It became clear very quickly that meant that I would be doing a computational project. That was fine by me. I like computers. <laughs> so I, that's kind of what I was aiming for. And I ended up totally accidentally in the biology side of this. So ending up doing basically a bioinformatics project because I went to speak to several supervisors and I spoke to a potential supervisor in Oxford and I was, I decided that the way I was going to do this was be very open with them when they, I was asking them about the project. So talk about the project and then say to them, I'm captain of the Blues hockey team next year, so I will have to do da-da-da-da. And from the look on their face during that part of the conversation, I would decide, is it worth writing their name down or will they never take me? I said this to Graham, who became my um, part two supervisor, and he went, oh, my son is in the men's hockey team. <laughs> and I was like, OK, I'm picking this project. And he was like, that's absolutely fine. We can work around that. And I've discovered that people who play sports seriously are, you know, they tend to work very hard because they're really good at organising their life because they've had to do this all the time. And I was like, this is getting better. I'm going to go and do this. And that is completely how I ended up in the bio side. So just to make this clear, I didn't do biology A-level. I had kind of binned it a long time ago, decided that wasn't something I was interested in. I basically avoided it at all points. And all of a sudden, the project I was doing was basically bioinformatics. And I would honestly say before I even started that project, I had no thought about really going on to a doctorate. You know, that wasn't what I was going to do. And within a couple of months of starting, I was like, I wonder if anyone would take me for a PhD. And that's really how all this happened. So it is all his fault um, because his son played hockey. There you go. And I guess the more important question, did you win the varsity match that year? Um, we, in fact, let's get this right. We, in fact, drew the varsity match that year, which was fine because we had won it previously. So we retained the trophy. And um, because we're very UK, um, you don't go to penalties or anything. If you draw, you draw. But the person who last won it retains the trophy. So we actually drew. So it was okay. 
Um, we held the trophy the entire time I was in the team from when I started. So four years I was here in Oxford. So that was all right. Very cool. I, I, I do like that a lot. Um, and um, okay, one more question. We'll keep it super short and then we'll do the final question. But okay, I was curious, um, what is in your lifetime, what is the type of work that you would like to see done? Sort of like what is the extent of what sort of scientific growth and markers and milestones would you really hope to see done in your lifetime? I think there are millions of these. There's so much that I think, um, if I think in terms of like the area I work in, I think that we will, we will, um, I just don't know how quickly, and I would be sad if it didn't happen in my lifetime, get to the stage where you can entirely design a drug on a computer so you'll know the structure of the protein, that's all of your input, and the output would be a drug that you are prepared to make and put into clinical trials. So I'm not suggesting we may get to the stage of, you know, understanding all the way through so that you could put it straight into the people you want to test it in. I think that's that's much more difficult to imagine you would completely trust a computer for. But something where the robots make the molecule. So basically a computer tells you to make this molecule. Humans don't make it. Robots make it. it and if it needs to be an iterative process, the robots make it. They feed directly back what happened in the assays to the computer. The computer tells you what next thing to make. And you go around that cycle until the molecule is made that can be made into the therapeutic that will be tested in clinical trials. And I think we can do that. And I think you can do the same thing for biotherapeutics. I think that will happen. And the amazing thing about that is the speed that that would give you. You know, it changes the concept of whether you can make a drug for something to from a, oh, 20 years from now, I might have a drug for that to two or three years. And that's, you know, amazing and probably even shorter. Um, clinical trials always take time and that's the bits very hard to speed up but that first bit you could close down to six months and I think companies are already starting to do that but I really think that can happen and that requires a really kind of complex set of problems to be solved but they're all on their way very cool and our final question which I'll now actually get around to is um what is one topic that you'd like to see statisticians or data scientists debate You warned me about this one and I thought about a few things and then I decided uh, uh, that there are sort of, I don't know, big questions and stuff that you could talk about. But I actually think the thing we should talk about a lot more than we do is how do we increase statistical literacy in the general population? My example for this is, and this is once again a colleague who came up with this, not me, who said, why is it OK for someone to say, I don't do math? Yep. Why, why is that allowed? Um, and you would never say, you know, or people, you don't say, I don't do reading. And if you think about the kinds of information that are, in some senses, almost destroying people's lives, but having really poor effects on the way the world works and on individuals and on people's ability to function in the way the world is, or even how their own data is being used, you know, by all of the companies that we are freely giving all our data to. Yeah. Statistical literacy would be so useful. And I don't mean that everyone needs to understand how equivariant graph neural network works, fairly obviously, but that they could understand more about what all that means, because so much of what's happening in their lives is being either governed by that or by not understanding it, they're going to make poor choices. And I almost feel like we've failed as a field by not saying, hang on a minute, 
we need to work out a way to do this. We need to work out a way to make it so that people can have enough of an understanding that they can cope with the information they're being given. And I think that's really important. But I also think it's, it's clearly really hard because we have not managed it. And I don't think that's because we're mean or evil. I think it's actually really difficult. So I really think we need to debate it, think about it and take some responsibility for it about how do we, the people who are comfortable in that kind of statistical world, make it easier for those people who aren't, because it's not easy. And so we need to think about how we do that and what we could do. That's very good. Actually, um, to date of me asking guests that question, your answer is actually the closest uh, to what my answer to that same question would be. Um, but with that, uh, Charlotte Dean from Oxford University, thanks so much for your time today. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Hey guys, it's Glenn. Thanks for your time today. I hope you liked today's episode. If you did, please consider smashing that like button. It's the single simplest, fastest way to make sure that YouTube shows this video to more people. If you really want to go crazy, consider subscribing or going to our website and joining the mail list. If you want to go totally crazy beyond that, forward this to a friend or colleague who you think might enjoy this too. We're a small channel and every bit helps. Our next episode will be coming out next week. So in the meantime, feel free to look around the channel and see other videos that might be of interest. As a quick disclaimer, the views expressed in the show do not represent anything other than the people saying those words, views, et cetera, like that. It doesn't mean anything about their employers or their employer's views or some thing about their employers or their neighbor's cat or anyone else not saying the words. And in fact, given that people tend to change their views when they're thoughtful enough, it might not even represent the views of the speaker by the time you're hearing the episode. So definitely come back and see if they've changed their views at a later date. They also don't represent the views of our sponsors. Thank you to our sponsors. You can check them out on our website.